Welcome to Deshi, the Bloodproof Entrepreneur Podcast, Episode 13. If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneurs across Africa. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. This is the second part of a two-part series where I interviewed Mira Meta, the co-founder and CEO of Tomato Joss, a for-profit social enterprise that is raising $50,000 on Kickstarter.com in order to build the tomato paste manufacturing factory in Kefi, Nigeria. This particular segment dwells mainly on the tactical aspects of running a Kickstarter campaign and what they hope to accomplish after raising the $50,000 for their venture. So take a listen and enjoy. And please don't forget to donate to the Kickstarter campaign on kickstarter.com. Search for Tomato Joss. That's T-O-M-A-T-O-J-O-S. And please feel free to share this episode with your friends on YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. We're currently the number one business podcast in Nigeria, but we'd like to get this show to reach as many people as possible so that all the beautiful people in Africa and across the globe can learn more about these daring entrepreneurs. And now, without further ado, here is a concluding piece of a two-part series where I talk to Mira Meta of Tomato Joss. It's not about failing. I think failing is actually good. It's just about getting up again. Okay, so that was a, f- a freak-out moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a big freak-out moment. I, I don't even remember what it was that sported on now, but I know I remember the feeling. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> okay. And, and you just mentioned about um, making money and returns. So let's talk about, as much as you can, of course, we don't want you to give away all your business plan or any secrets whatsoever, but... Um, if you could just put us in like a ballpark range of what you think um, a smallholder farmer can make by working with you guys in this venture, and then you know how do you guys intend to make profits out of this? Because a you're doing a social enterprise, but it's also for profit, and every astute, reasonable businessman will have to have some type of way to pay the bills, and you know be able to get out of the chicken coop and into a, <laughs> an apartment or a house eventually. So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about, you know, how sure. you guys intend to make some money for the venture and for the people that you're working with. So a lot of it has to do with scale. As I had said, I think earlier in the interview, you know, tomato paste is a commodity. Um, and if we're thinking about, you know, if our primary market at least initially, is going to be those repackagers. Mm -hmm. They already own the brand. They already have the distribution system. What they just need is the bulk product. And the bulk product comes at a global price. You know, and it's very easy to find out what that price is by going online and doing a little bit of research. You know what your upper bound is going to be on revenue, right? And that means then that it becomes a game about cost. It becomes a game about how low cost can you produce so that, you know, you can sell at this global price and still make a profit. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about, you know, agriculture and producing commodities, the way you achieve cost savings is through scale. Um, And so, you know, when we've been thinking about our growth plan, we've basically been thinking how big do we have to get such that, you know, we can then create a company that's going to be profitable and it's going to be, you know, worthwhile for, for me and Shane to have been in this for five years or seven years or however long it's going to take to get to that point. Yeah. Um, so, so that's sort of been the, the sort of way that we've thought about growth. But when you think about it, you know, the other thing that you need to think about is the unit economics, right? That yeah. like, no matter how big you are, there has to be some level of profitability at the very, very small scale such that, you know, when you when you get big enough, you can cover your fixed costs, right? That's that's sort of how that piece of it works. And so we've done a lot of work trying to understand what the farmers spend today um, on all of the inputs that they use, how much labor goes into the farming, and then at the end of the day, what they're able to achieve in terms of prices. Um, and the price of tomatoes, because we had talked about this a little bit earlier, you know, tomato process, tomatoes are, are dry season 
vegetable. Mm -hmm. They grow best in the dry season because the rain sort of ruins the crop. That means that the price of tomatoes actually varies five times over the course of the year. So if, uh, for those of you guys who know about Naira, which is the Nigerian currency, um, at the lowest point in Nasarawa State, 40 kg basket of tomatoes sells for 1,200 Naira, um, which is what, like $8 or something? Yeah, close to 10. Yeah. Just a 10, a little less than 10, maybe $7 or $8. Yeah. At the highest point of the year, which would be probably in like July, August, when you have like the full on rainy season taking place, um, the same basket of tomatoes will sell for like eight to 10,000 naira. Wow. So you can see, you know, and, and, and if you think about the other side of that is the volumes, right? So when, when the tomatoes are selling for 1200 naira, that's when all of the farmers are putting their tomatoes out to the market. And that's why you have that situation that I saw you know, when I was driving around in northern Nigeria where the farmers just can't even sell to the market because the markets get oversaturated. There's like a, what they call a harvest glut. Yeah. And they're not able to sell their products. So, you know, the average farmer um, who basically farms maize during the rainy season and then as soon as that's over starts planting tomatoes, they start planting probably sometime right around now. This is right, right when the maize harvest sort mm-hmm. of finishes. Um, they will be making maybe about $1,000 um, total on their crop. And that's wow. like a net, now, that's the, a total of a thousand dollars now on their crop on a hectare, say, okay. And that's going to, that's supposed to be their income for, you know, say six months, right? thousand dollars. It's not a lot of money. Um, we think that if we can work with the farmers to get their yields improved, um, get them, better, higher quality seedlings. So they actually, you know, right now the farmers will plant their seeds under a tree until they're big enough and then they'll transplant them in the open field. But the the seedlings don't get the same kind of controlled environment that we can offer them from a greenhouse. So we actually provide the farmers instead of seeds with seedlings and help them to transplant them very well because the transplanting process is also very, very crucial. Um, And then support them by helping them to do crop checks to look for disease, helping them to, you know, make sure that they're watering their plants accurately, that they have the right kinds of irrigation, that if there's a problem that comes up, they don't just go to the market and buy an unmarked bottle and put it into their knapsack to spray and then spray the field with some random chemical, but that they actually have like a very clear idea of what the disease is and how to treat it. With all of those things combined, we think that we can help the farmers achieve an income of $5,000 for the harvest. So that would be a five, five X increase. And that's after we take into consideration all of those services that we provide and the farmer would actually pay for that, um, out of their harvest amount. So even after they remove the cost of the seedling, the cost of the harvesting, the cost of the education program, we still think we can improve their incomes by five times. And Um, that raises the level of wealth of the people in the area because you have other levels of um, businesses springing up because the farmer is wealthier, probably get better health care. Exactly. Um, they'll be able to build schools for just to send their kids and stuff like that. They say every additional dollar um, has a $10 impact hmm. in rural communities. So, you know, if you think about 5000 well, basically injecting $4,000 into the local economy per farmer, and then if we can work with 1,000 farmers, you know, that's $4 million going into the economy. Yeah. Um, and we think that that, you know, that actually can make a huge, huge, huge impact in the region. Exactly. Because part of the reason why people uh, were having this increase in um, the terrorist activity, Boko Haram, is because the people, and it's driven primarily in the north, because we have a lot of young people coming out of the country, and then some may be able to go to school, some may not be able to go to school, but they don't have jobs, they feel they've been left behind by the government, they're disenfranchised, and then somebody can sell them an ideology and say, hey guys, these are the people that are the reason why you are where you are, so why don't you take up guns and let's fight against them and you'll be able to be successful. By raising the standard of living of these people in this region, you can see that they'll see a viable option of how to make a living for themselves and their families and they will not need to engage in violent behavior or all these type of activities and those um, issues that we're seeing now in terms of terrorism and increased violence will kind of subside and reduce because 
why would you want to go and kill people and loot or whatever where you could possibly get killed yourself whereas you can just you know have your farm somewhere you make a living and you live a comfortable life you know okay. exactly exactly um that's that's really at the core of what we're trying to do you know is provide that stability and provide a source of income a source of economy you know a source of labor um to help you know to help increase job security and, and not just job security but good jobs you yeah. know story that i i remember very very clearly from my time at, at clinton um i used to i used to sometimes go to HIV support groups because I was doing a lot of work with HIV and, you know, you want to understand the people that you're trying to help. So I remember in, in Guagualada, which is uh, an area outside of Abuja, yeah. probably don't know about it since you're a Lagos boy, <laughs> but it's, uh, <laughs> it's close to the airport. And mm-hmm. I was at a, I was at a um, support group out there. And I remember this, this guy who had this story and he said, look, you know, um, my name is so-and-so I'm here because my wife has HIV and I don't know if I have HIV. You know, she told me she had HIV. I went to the doctor to get tested. They told me that the result was indeterminate and that I had to come back. So six weeks later, I left again and I went to go, you know, get tested a second time. Now this guy worked as a baggage handler at the Abuja airport. So he was one of those guys who would like carry the suitcases from the airplane and put them on the, you know, luggage turning mm-hmm. thing that comes into the airport, right? He comes back from the, sec- the second test, and he finds out that he doesn't have a job anymore. Wow. Because somebody found out that he had gone to the clinic to get an HIV test, and his manager was like, you can't work here anymore. You don't have a job here anymore. And it, you know, it felt like, to me, that was just such a striking story, because it was like, this is a guy who is trying to do the right thing. He's, you know, he had to make a choice about whether he was going to take the afternoon off of work or not. And he did take the afternoon off of work to try and do something that was going to be good for his life. And now he ends up not having an income. And that just made me feel like, you know, I want to be somebody who's a good employer. I want to be somebody who creates agency for the people that are working for me. Uh, not that I get taken advantage of and not that I, you know, end up being playing anybody's fool. But these are, you know, people are honest. And if they honestly want to try and do something that's, you know, right for them and right for their family, they should be able to do that and they should be able to work for a company that can support that, you know? And so I think that for me, one of the things that I really care about is, is being a good employer, Mm. being somebody who, who actually cares about, understands the needs of my employees, encourages them to do the best work that they can on the job so that then they can have the best life that they can live outside of the job, you know? Very interesting. So what about um, the potential uh, returns for tomato juice itself? We've spoken about the smallholder farmers. Is there any light or you can shed on how your finances are expected to look? Yeah, I can I can try. I mean, yeah. you know, this gets to the point of like how open do you get and how Yeah, no, I mean, obviously we don't want you to spill the beans no. on your secret but yeah. I mean, you know, Tomato tomato paste is a commodity, so we don't expect to be making the kinds of returns that you make at a tech company. Mm. Um, but, you know, we think that at scale, if we're producing some level of um, bulk paste for those repackers, some level of what we call value-add products that are branded, you know, with a Tomato Joss brand, and we can talk about the Tomato Joss name if you want, um, yes. and, you know, some level of potentially products for export to the region because this, this whole region is really a tomato-eating region. Um, that we can achieve, you know, margins of something like thirty percent, okay. which is which is pretty good and pretty healthy. Perfect margin. Okay. So that's that's the that's the model that we're working with right now, okay. um, and you know, scaling up to a business where at the end stage we think we can probably be about thirty million dollars in revenue. Okay. Nice, nice, nice. So let's talk about the name itself because I do know what tomato juice is but tell the people what sure. is tomato juice huh? so so the term tomato juice um refers to a city so people actually in america think this tomato joe's uh mm-hmm. like j-o apostrophe s nobody really understands they're like what is joss and i'm like well joss is actually a city in nigeria which is very well known for vegetable production and the term tomato joss 
um, actually is a pidgin English, like Nigerian English slang for a cute girl. Um, you know, because the tomatoes from Joss are extra sweet and ripe and juicy. And uh, so, you know, if you're somebody's tomato Joss, it's like yeah. a very nice term of endearment that yeah. you would say like to your girlfriend or something like that. So, you know, from a branding perspective, we thought that that was actually a really cute way to um, highlight that this is a company that's proudly Nigerian and that, you know, is going to make a very high quality product that is, you know, made by Nigerians for Nigerians. Nice. Uh, so that's sort of how the, the name came into play. Cool. So you trademarked the name in Nigeria and the U.S.? <laughs> we've, uh, just in Nigeria so far. I don't think we've worked on it in the U.S. yet, okay. but maybe we should. I don't know. <laughs> okay. That's cool. That's cool. And your Kickstarter campaign is um, running for the next, what, seven days or eight days? Right. So, what's the goal of that? What happens? Uh, let's let's look at it on the other side. What happens if you don't achieve the full fifty thousand dollars? Tell tell the audience where you are right now and what you need to achieve. So, um, as of last night, we had four hundred and eight backers, and we had raised about forty four thousand one hundred dollars, give or take. Mm, nice. Um, we are planning on using this money. So we're trying to raise $50,000. So we have about this $6,000 left to raise in about seven days. So we need to raise, yeah, just over a thousand dollars a day. Mm -hmm. Um, we are planning to use this money to buy small scale processing equipment so that we can, you know, start to gain expertise in that tomato paste processing space. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, as we said, the biggest proof point for us is proving that the tomato yields can be right and that the right kind of tomatoes can be grown in Nigeria. But, as we're doing, you know, that proof point, it's also important for us to demonstrate operational experience and expertise in creating the product that we actually want to make. Even though we know that at small scale, it's not going to be profitable, right? So we're we're certainly not going to make money um, in the first year yeah. as we're trying to as we're trying to just prove that we can do it. But this this fifty thousand dollars is going to go um, directly to purchasing processing equipment. Mm -hmm. um, from, a, from actually from a group that is in Nigeria that has developed the ability to make small-scale processing equipment for tomatoes. So oh. we're going to try and buy local, which we're pretty oh. excited about. Um, if we don't get this money, it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be tough. I think it's going to be very tough for us to, to raise that money through other avenues. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we think that at this point we're so close that we're really hoping that we'll make it. Yeah. Um, and not just that we'll make it to, you know, with one big donation. I think, you know, Big donations are great. You know, anybody out there who has $100, $200 to spend. Hey, Bill Gates, if you're listening, but, Mark Cuban, Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> cut, cut one of those unlimited checks. <laughs> exactly. But more than that, I think we want to sort of increase, as I said, the community of people who cares about this project, knows about this project. Right now we have 408 backers. Mm -hmm. And goal is that, you know, by the end of the campaign, I want us to be above 700 backers. Yeah. So that means that, you know, everybody who's already given, like go back and find one friend to give $1, you yeah. know, and, and increase the community of people who want to see this project succeed. And, you know, especially, I think, especially in Nigeria who eventually would be the end consumers for our project. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's sort of really the, the goal of what we're trying to do is, you know, raise awareness actually get enough money to buy the processor because that's really crucial to the business. Um, but then also sort of foster a community of people who, who really, you know, care about the future of the country and care about trying to do something a little bit different. Nice. And um, so I don't know how a Kickstarter campaign was. So if you don't achieve the $50,000, you get nothing? Nothing. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> it's all or nothing. Okay. So we are, you know, we're definitely trying to pull out all the stops and make sure that we hit that $50,000 target because, okay. uh, you know, at this point we're so close um, and it would be a big shame if, if we didn't end up being able to make it. Yeah, okay. Now now it makes sense because I thought you'd still get that money anyway. But. No, so some, some campaigns like Indiegogo, which is another sort of crowd rising campaign, they have one where whatever you raise, you make. But Kickstarter... They really feel that it's important to have a set goal and a set reason for why you have that goal, right? Mm -hmm. and, and and the fact that, you know, you couldn't raise this money any other way, which is why you're going to do it on Kickstarter. Yeah. And, you know, you need it for a specific purpose. If we got if we got forty five thousand dollars, 
you know, we wouldn't actually have enough money to buy the processing equipment because it costs $50,000. Yeah. So we need to raise that full amount. Um, and that's why they sort of have this all or nothing approach. Okay. Uh, but it's a little scary. That makes sense. So what are the level of um, prizes you get for being a donor to the Kickstarter campaign? Well, uh, we have all manner of prizes. That was actually really one of the fun parts of the project was putting together the the sort of uh, prize list. Um, for a dollar, you can join and get our email updates. Um, we send out updates, you know, every week. Well, a little bit more frequently right now because we're in the campaign. But yeah. I think, you know, when the campaign ends, we want that community to continue. And so we'll continue to send updates to all of our backers, you know, every couple weeks or so just to keep them posted on on how we're progressing, how the farm is going. Mm-hmm. Um, the rewards, you know, range, they're all related to tomatoes, obviously. Yeah. Because we're a tomato-paste company. So $25 is the first point at which you could actually pre-order our tomato paste, um, which is what we're going to use the processing equipment to make in this first year. Um, so you can buy, you know, 100, 100 ounces of Nigerian tomato paste, the first of its kind. Uh, nobody has done it yet. Yeah. It's very exciting. <laughs> and then, you know, higher-end prizes for $75, you get paste, you get spices, so you can make your own jollof rice, you get recipe cards so you can learn how to cook the Nigerian way. If you don't already know, uh, you get a T-shirt, you know, to be on Team Tomato Joss. Um, and you get to adopt a tomato plant, which I think is kind of cute. So we're actually going to go out to the fields and uh, take a picture of an individual plant for each one of our backers at that level. And, you know, write a little note from the tomato plant saying thank you. Uh, <laughs> so even if you don't actually make it out to our farm, you can still... Uh, I'm going to have my very own tomato on your farm. Yeah. A, you know, it's like adopt a shark or adopt an elephant, you know, yeah. adopt a tomato plant. Um, then we have higher end prices that, you know, a couple of them have actually already filled out. So we had one that was very popular that was um, fine dining Nija style. Oh. So for $250, our backers were able to... Um, go to a Nigerian restaurant close to them and have a three-course Nigerian meal. Um, if you want to go a little bit fancier for $1,000, Shane and I will fly to your home and cook you a Nigerian meal, a dinner party for eight uh, in your home. Wow. So, you know, some of it is so what about... what are you guys going to make? Is that a secret? What's that? What are you guys going to cook for that price? Well, for that price, I mean, we're going to we're gonna have surveys sent out to all the people who back us at that level and ask them what they want, whether okay. it's a goosey or a vegetable soup. Do you know how to make a goosey? <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning. Okay. I, uh, I love cooking. And so I've, I've actually done a lot of, uh, I learned how to make akara. I learned how to make moi moi when wow. I was living in Nigeria. Um, I eat a lot of food that people don't even know about. Like there's one Igbo food that I love called okpa. Um, I know it, yeah. You know it. Yeah. So made out of bambara nut. Everyone is like, what? You know, my friends in Lagos even are like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, it's this food. You can get it in like a nugu. I don't know. <laughs> People don't travel. <laughs> two Igbo girls who used to sell it on the side of the road on my way to work. I would buy it for breakfast every morning. Oh, wow. People think I'm crazy, but I'm used to people thinking I'm crazy. Oh. Give me one second. Sorry, I just need to plug in my computer. It's, sure. It's, uh, the plug is right here. So, you know, we've, we've tried to have fun with the prizes. Um, and, you know, for as low as a dollar and as high as $5,000, you can be a backer in the campaign. For $5,000, you're actually invited to come out and visit us on the farm. You wouldn't have to stay in a chicken coop. We will give you the guest <laughs> house. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but we really want to make it a community. We really want to make it about, you know, people who care about the country moving forward, people who care about, you know, Nigerians having access to high quality tomato paste because mm. right now the stuff coming from China, a lot of it is low quality. A lot of it has flour, starch, food coloring. It's expired. They're putting a different expiration date on it. You know, and we really want to put the tomato back in the paste. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's that's interesting because you don't, um, you wouldn't think of people putting expired tomato paste in the U.S. And recycling it for people to use because a bunch of lawsuits and all that stuff. But obviously in Africa, the laws are not effectively um, executed. So you need to be able to be conscious of the fact that what people are currently eating might be expired. You know, could yeah. lead to health issues and stuff like that. Okay, so that's that's great. Even even when my former job, you know, with, with Clinton. Um, you would find expired 
medicine, you know, coming into the continent. And Africa has been a dumping ground for, you know, global production lines for, for decades. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, you know, I think it's time for a change. I think that this continent can actually be producing so many of the things that it's importing right within its own borders, um, especially Nigeria. Nigeria has so many educated people, has such a dynamic workforce. It's the largest economy in Africa. It's the largest country by population in Africa. Um, and I think that they really have an opportunity to step up and be a leader for the continent and sort of lead by example um, by producing a lot of their own, their own things. Nice. Nicely done. So we're beginning to wind down the show. I know we've spoken about a lot and it seems like there's still more to go. I don't know to go. <laughs> well, obviously, I know you're a hustler, and so time is precious to you. And I just want to be respectful of your time and sure. knock out a few quick questions, and then we'll let you get on the hustle and keep making that money. So, um, so just a few questions. So who is an entrepreneur that you admire the most and why? Oh, my gosh. That's it. Well, honestly, it's my dad, um, which maybe is like lame because he's not famous or anything like that. That's but um, my my dad is an entrepreneur as well. So is my brother. I think it sort of runs in our family. Um, but he he started his own company when he was forty. I was or he was actually forty four because I was four years old. He's forty years older than me, and uh, he started it out of our, the downstairs of our house. Um, and you know, when I was little, I actually didn't have babysitters because I used to just play in the office and like the secretary would watch me mm. while I was, you know, whatever I was doing, playing with the paper clips and doing all that stuff. And, um, you know, he, uh, he approaches work with so much focus and so much drive and was able to create, you know, a 300 person company, um, in a country that he wasn't from. So he's from India. Um, he traveled to the U S for school. And he ended up, you know, first working at a few different research positions and then realizing that he wanted to, that he had an idea that he had conviction about and that he wanted to pursue that idea. Mm -hmm. um, and he did, you know, and he grew the company and they had, you know, lots of challenges and lots of fear. And, you know, he actually, my parents put my brother and my high school education like on a credit card. You know, like that's how much they believed in the company and what they were trying to do. They were like, sure, we'll, we'll figure out a way to pay this off, you know. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, that kind of, um, belief and then, and then not just the belief, but the drive and the focus to actually make it into something that does succeed, um, is so inspiring to me and like living, living, you know, under the roof of somebody who was able to do that, um, is so inspiring, you know, and, and at the same time, you know, as my dad, you know, he always had time to play with me. You know, I never realized, you know. He was busy. How much he was doing until I'm in the same position now, and I'm like, wow, I don't even know how you managed to have a family and, you know, take me for walks and teach me about science and do, you know, chemistry experiments with me and read to me at nighttime when you were in the middle of, of launching this whole thing yourself. So he, he inspires me every day, um, you know, through his integrity and through his hard work and, and through his focused vision. Nice, nice, nice. That's incredible. And what of your brother? What does he do? So my brother actually lives in Tokyo. He, me, both, both of me and my brother have decided to pursue opportunities in countries far away from where he grew up in Boston. Um, he lives in Tokyo and he is a gamer um, and a game designer. So he's actually creating a mobile game um, for, for phones, um, for the Android and for the iPhone. So if you guys, I don't know if anybody in the audience ever played Final Fantasy. Yeah. Uh, it's like a role-playing game. Uh, he's creating that for um, mobile phones. Wow! So yeah, it's it's pretty cool. We're in a similar position with our companies, so you know we'll get on calls once a week and talk to each other about you know what challenges are you facing, what challenges are you facing, and mm. give each other advice, keep each other pumped up. Um, we're very close. I think I'm I'm very lucky to have a family that's so supportive of me and and that I'm so close to. Um, so it's it's fun to be going through the same process. Uh, <laughs> Granted, in very, very different fields yeah. on very, very different continents, um, but there are still a lot of similarities with what we're trying to do and, and how we're going about it. Nice, exactly. That's nice. And um, so, could you tell us uh, some of the useful resources that have helped you on your entrepreneurial journey? I see a lot of books on your shelf back there. So, what are some of your favorite books and why? 
Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. I actually, so my tendency when I read is actually to read novels more than to read nonfiction, just because I feel like uh, I like to be transported into another world when, I'm, when I have free time. Free time. To um, but, you know, that said, um, one of the books that I'm reading right now is actually the book written by the, the group who started the One Acre Fund in Kenya. Um, and it's, it's so useful because it talks so much about the farmer experience, the smallholder experience, how a company actually can work with farmers. Um, and it's a story too, you know, it's, it's not just boring facts about X, Y, Z, um, but it really is written, you know, in a very, very lyrical way, um, which I always love to read. I love to read for the story. Um, so that's, that's been a book that's been, you know, very, very useful to me recently, Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, besides that, I think reading, you know, obviously at HBS, we have to read some of the books that our professors have written. So The Founder's Dilemma um, mm-hmm. is, is a great book. And it goes through so many different things that, uh, that you face as an entrepreneur, interpersonal, uh, equity, you know, everything. Um, one of the other, you know, books that maybe is a weird book to, you know, talk about or think about. There's a, there's a class at HBS called Authentic Leadership Development. Um, and it's all about sort of as, you know, as I said, the soft skills are so important and the interpersonal mm-hmm. piece of it is so important and figuring out how to be inspiring and figure out how to, I guess, be comfortable being vulnerable in front of other people and realizing that that actually can sometimes be more inspiring than, um, than just coming on with a strong face and this big smile and saying everything's going to be okay. But, you know, sharing those fears, um, sharing, you know, the doubts that you have uh, can actually be just as inspiring to to other people around you. And so one of the books that we read in the course of that is called Difficult Conversations. Um, And I I found that to actually be a really good, like, useful guide for me um, in terms of just how to think about, you know, talking to people that you want to buy from people that you want to sell to your co-founder, your investors. I mean, everything, as I said, when you're in execution mode, everything is about how are you executing in the context of other people and how are you, you know, getting to the point where you're understanding what they need and that they're understanding what you need and you're understanding whether or not you can sort of make those needs meet. Um, So that's, that's also been sort of super helpful for me. Cool. Cool. And um, I guess this question is twofold. So what would you advise um, young entrepreneurs that are just getting out of school and thinking of setting up a venture, either in Africa or anywhere else, just like you did coming from the U.S. to set up a business in Africa? So what's some of the key advice you'd advise someone in your shoes that's trying to start? Because I know you're just starting, but also you have already have some experience working on the ground and so you've shared a lot of wisdom as to what you've learned so far and I think it would be very helpful for someone that's still on the fence with a good idea but is afraid of you know like take for example we've spoken about the Boko Haram crisis you know Africa this is um, facing the Ebola challenge and then people have pulled back just because they assume the whole of Africa has Ebola whereas it's um (laughs) look at it it's just a small subset of the continent and it's actually aggressively being fought by the medical agencies now so sure so i think specifically for emerging markets you know the data asymmetries are very 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 real and so i think one of the most valuable things that you can do as a young entrepreneur who's trying to decide if you if there's an opportunity somewhere is to go there and check it out and see for yourself because mm-hmm. you're never going to get you're never going to get as far as you as you want to by sitting at a computer screen and trying to get research reports and things like that you know that you pull off the internet or even by going to the library and pulling out you know reports and things that you know maybe McKinsey or BCG or somebody have written i think it's so important and this is something that I learned, you know, when I was working with um, the Clinton Health Access Initiative, too. You know, I was doing national forecasts for HIV, and I realized that I actually had to go to the 20 biggest hospitals in the country and pull out their data records and find out how many children are alive 
and getting HIV treatment because the numbers that are coming to the national figure don't make sense. You have to go there and you have to pull that data out and then you find out a better idea of what the truth is, what's really happening on the ground. So I think that is absolutely crucial. Um, you know, as much as you can, if you think you see an opportunity, go there and try and check it out for yourself. Um, and, and, you know, and go there with an open mind, you know, understanding, yeah, I think I know what this opportunity may be, but I'm open to listening to and hearing from people who are on the ground if they may be telling me something different or maybe, you know, telling me something that I didn't think I was going to hear. Um, that's, that's really crucial. I think, you know, as I had already said, if you're a student and you're trying to start a company, take advantage of being a student, take full advantage of being a student, you know, um, even though you feel like you're super, super busy and you are, because I was, you know, super, super busy when I was a student in HBS, you're not actually as busy as you are when you're in the real world. Um, you do have time. You can make the time, uh, go meet with professors, go meet with anybody who will talk to you, um, I, my own personal advice is like, don't be too shy about sharing your idea and talking about it with people because I think that that actually can help you get really good feedback and really good advice and meet really good people who will want to help you mm -hmm. um, as opposed to keeping it so close to your chest that it never gets to breathe and you end up suffocating it, right? You end up not actually being able to drive that idea because you were never able to evolve it. Yeah. Um, I think that that's, you know, also really, really important. Um, and I think, you know, try to have fun. Like, if you're, you know, one of the reasons I, I, I'm doing this is because I thought it would be a whole lot more exciting and fun than, you know, working at one of the three jobs that I got an offer for. Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't want to sit at a desk job every day. So, you know, when you're thinking about what the opportunity is going to be, like, think to yourself, like, what is it really going to feel like for me to be doing this? And this is actually going to be something, you know that's fun for me to do every day because you're going to live and breathe it for however, for however many years. Um, so you should, you, should, you should want to do it. You know, it, it should be something that gives you energy and not something that's taking energy away from you. Yeah. Cool. And, uh, you've covered a lot of these actually. So <laughs> um. <laughs> I talk a lot. My, one of my dad's friends told me that when I went to Harvard Business School, they taught me how to talk very well. <laughs> yeah, you've covered a lot of these, actually. So, um, yeah. So, okay. So, this will be probably the last bit of direct personal advice. And, um, oh, gosh. And also, I want to put it like this. Tell us about a time when you've, experienced a personal failure or tragedy and how did you overcome that oh boy uh personal failure or tragedy mm -hmm. or a failure or a tragedy okay mm -hmm. um i guess wow I'm trying to think of like one that you know there's there's definitely a lot but i'm like a little uncomfortable sharing um, yeah, whatever you're comfortable sharing, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if we... I guess one of the things that has been not necessarily a failure, but something that's been, you know, tough is, um, you know, when, when Shane and I started this project back in January, um, we actually had a team of four. Okay. You know, there were there were four of us that were working on this project together, and um, you know, I was always the one who was sort of driving it because it was my idea, and I, you know, I was the one who was really considering doing it full time. Um, and over the course of that semester, you know, Shane I think came on board and really decided that he you know also believed in this idea enough to to not recruit and to to take it on full time. But I think you know I still have some, you know, some regrets about losing the other two team members. Um, the four of us had a great time working together, had a really good dynamic. Um, and, you know, especially one of the, one of the other girls on the project, you know, was one of my very, very close friends at HBS. And I, you know, I would still want to work with her on something in the future. It didn't work out for her to, to join the project thus full time because of, you know, certain, well, she has like some cash flow demands. Um, that, you know, need to be met and, mm -hmm. you know, wasn't necessarily in a place for financially she was able to, to take a job without a salary. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to lose somebody who 
you trust and who you enjoy working with and who you laugh with and who you have, you know, that great dynamic with, um, when you, when you really feel like, wow, like we could be making this five times better even if we had, you know, those two other teammates go with us. Um, and so, you know, it can be hard when you have to shift and when you have to pivot and when you have to think about, well, where are we going to get that expertise or where are we going to get that skill set? And it's not just like, where are we going to get that skill set from a work perspective, but where are we going to get that, you know, that dynamic from a, a person perspective and a company perspective, you know, those people that were the ones that made us laugh when it was three in the morning and we're like trying to do this PowerPoint presentation that's due in five hours and we're like tearing our hair out or the one who, you know, buys Swedish fish for the team and is like, Hey guys, you know, like the random, whatever it was, um, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's hard. Um, you know, change is always hard, right. And companies are always changing because they're living, breathing organisms. And so I think you have to sort of figure out a way that helps you to, you know, continue to move forward and continue to drive the business forward and, and, you know, say, okay, you know, not to take, not to take those kinds of things personally, right. To be like, well, there were other circumstances that prevented this person or these people from being able to stay with a team. Um, and that's probably going to be the case as we grow, you know, we're certainly not going to be the same team in the same makeup of, you know, the same seven people that we are right now as an organization. We're probably going to a be a lot bigger and B maybe have, you know, different components in terms of who's our head agronomist or who's our head, you know, farm manager or who's our chief irrigation specialist or whatever it is. And I think, you know, making sure that you are able to build an institution that can withstand and a culture that can be maintained, even when there are different people in those positions, um, is really important to try and figure out. So, you know, uh, it's, it's tough. It's not always easy and you don't always get the results that you want. You don't always, you know, have every single superstar that you would want to hire, um, be on your team, you know, and then you, you figure out, well, how do we reset? How do we keep going forward? You know, it's like every one of those failures that it's not about getting knocked down. It's about how quickly you get back up. Yeah, true. And um, your partner, Shane, that's on the ground with you, like, tell us more about him. I'm really sad he couldn't be here to oh. share his own bit of the story, but Seems like he's just an amazing guy, right? In the thick of things, sleeping in the chicken coop. Tell us a little bit about him. I I could not do this without Shane. Yeah. Shane is uh, incredible. So he, uh, first of all, has so much positive energy. It's crazy. Like he only sleeps, I think, like three hours a night or something. Like I, I like when we we spent however many very ten intense weeks together, you know, traveling through Ghana and Nigeria, and it was his first time in West Africa. He'd never been to Nigeria. He went to Ghana first, and when we were in Ghana, everybody in Ghana was like, don't go to Nigeria. Oh, my God. Nigeria will kill you. They, like, cheat. They lie. Blah, blah, blah. You know, and Shane is just like, why are we going to Nigeria again? Like, Ghana seems pretty good, you know? And I was just like, okay, we're setting the bar low. And I was like, please don't quit, Shane. Like, gotta just get through this. You know? Um, But but he's got such an open mind. And he came into Nigeria, and the bar was admittedly very low. And even on day one, he was like, wow. Like, people have a really big misconception about this country and about the people who live in this country Mm -hmm. and about, like, what this country is all about. Because Nigeria, like clearly just is is getting a bad reputation. And that just sort of speaks volumes to his character, his personality. He's, you know, like, I'm the one sitting on my floor, you know, listening to my heart race, and Shane's like, come on, like, let's go, like, do this next thing. We can do it. You know, he's, he's definitely such a positive driving force in the company. Um, he's such a fast learner. Like, we're not farmers, but Shane has read probably every book that you can on tomato production and tomato processing and, you know, has become a de facto expert to the point where, you know, he can carry his own in conversations with the agronomist. You know, not just, like, I know enough to be dangerous, which is how much I know, but he actually has, like, studied and learned it um, inside and out. And, like, being a fast learner, being willing to just go out and try things, um, being willing to sleep in the chicken coop and being willing to actually be the one that's on the ground, you know, managing our team of five when the wheelbarrow breaks or when you know, we run out of water. Um, I just, it just speaks volumes to sort of his personality and his intelligence and his integrity as a person to, to be the other half of this business because it's, it's, it's a lot to take on. Um, 
And, you know, while my family at least uh, has been to Nigeria and understands a little bit about, you know, emerging markets because my dad is from India, you know, Shane's family is Irish and they're like, what the heck are you doing? How do we raise our son to like go and do this random thing? We don't even understand what you're doing, you know, and, and for him to sort of take that in stride and, and still want to come through and, and, you know, work on this and give it 110% every day. Um, it's just, it's so encouraging and it's, it's very, very inspiring for me every day to have a, a co-founder who really, really believes the dream. Nice, nice, nice. Well, Mira, we've reached the end of the show. <laughs> I've had so much fun. It's been two hours talking and... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we haven't even scratched the surface, and the company is still just a couple months old. I know. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's how I feel too. It's really been fun. It's really been fun. And before I let you go, I just want you because guys were really trying to make sure that these guys raised the fifty thousand dollars. Like she just said, it's all or nothing on Kickstarter, and. With only six, seven days to go, it's this. This is actually my first show where I'm recording video. It's the video is going to be up. I don't know what I'm going to host it on or whatever yet. I'll cross that bridge like <laughs> as soon as I hang up with Mira. But it's going to be up, and then it's going to be aired almost instantaneously. So as soon as I finish editing, I'm just going to put it straight online. I'll send everybody an email and I'll direct traffic to it. So. This is something where I'm trying to turn this around as quickly as possible because I really believe in what these guys are doing. I'm going to support them too. I like everybody that listens to this show, that loves this show, that likes what we're about to also like put your money where your mouth is. That, that's what I'm, I'm calling you out. So everybody, that all my prior guests that have been on the show, I'm calling you guys out too. This is not the ice bucket challenge. This is the tomato sauce challenge. So... <laughs> So let's get some sauce growing, you know, help help these guys out. Let's help them achieve their goal, even if they... So what happens if you do exceed the goal of 50000 So every extra dollar we get, we can, you know, spend on programming on the farm. Okay. So, you know, as I said, we've got five employees now. We've got the sixth one starting on Monday. Um, we've got payroll to meet. We've got farms to grow, you know, hectares to plow. If we exceed the goal by a lot, we can actually get, you know, more high quality processing equipment. Um, and that would be awesome, you know, or we can actually start to pay for the, the housing that the equipment will go into because that, you know, the equipment doesn't just sit in the field. We yeah. actually have to build a, a building that we'll go into. So there's certainly no shortage of programmatic spend um, for that money to, to get into. We've got a couple of stretch goals. You know, if we were going to be able to achieve like $300,000, uh, we'd be able to buy a fully integrated processing equipment that actually can do packaging as well. Okay. Um, I don't know that we're going to hit that in six days, but yeah. anybody generous who's out there, if you want to contribute, you know, ten grand, throw it in, throw it at us. We will absorb it. <laughs> great, great, great. So, yeah, just give um, any other final pitch, any extra giveaway, anything at all for Tomato Joyce, anything. You want to say before we wrap up? Um, well, it's been a it's been a huge pleasure talking to you all. I think you know. Oh, one thing that we do want to actually advertise. I said this in an update, but I think I want to make it very clear on the show as well. Is that for those people who are backing us in New York, Boston, Lagos, and Abuja, um, and possibly in Washington D.C. as well? We're going to have what we call paste parties in the spring. So instead of um, sending us sending you the prizes that you know you select if you back us, you can actually come and have a party. And by being a backer, you'll receive free admission into um, a pretty fun event that will be you know you'll get to meet us, you'll get to meet each other, we'll get to eat some tomato product, we'll get to drink and dance. Maybe we'll get flavored at one of the concerts if I can wrangle it. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll we'll have ourselves a good old fashioned time. So you know that's one more reason to back us is. And I threw a pretty good party. When I turned 25 in Abuja, I actually threw a party that had 300 people. Wow. Uh, we, we partied on the same night as uh, there was a new club opening at the Sheraton, and I actually drew a bigger crowd than the opening at the club. So wow. I know how to throw a good party. Um, if that's not a reason to back us, I don't know what is. Yeah. But, you know, look forward to meeting all of you. I really appreciate the support that we've gotten already. I'm looking forward to getting a bit more support in this last week. And, you know, Chi, thank you so much for... Uh, letting me share my story with your audience. I think um, I'm really excited about it, and I hope yeah. you guys are all too. 
great, great. Well, there you have it, guys. Um, love the enthusiasm, love the passion, love the product, love the team. I love it all. I love the sauce. I haven't tasted <laughs> it yet, but I'm sure I'm going to love it too. Yes. I love what you're doing, and I think this is something that's really re- necessary. It's needed, and I know it's something that resonates with a lot of people because, like I said, I saw it on Twitter through a friend of mine, and then in some of the Nigerian forums, people are talking about it and posting about it. So um, this is something that we should all get behind and support. And who knows, maybe your project is going to be on Kickstarter one day and you need um the knowledge and the wisdom Mira has shared to help you get your successful project off the ground and up and running. So this is one way for you to like pay it forward and also like expect to receive something in the future. It might not be in a similar way, but it could also be, you know, you never know what serendipitous things can come out of supporting a venture like this. So I just want to encourage everyone. I'm still going to hop on this every day for the next seven days because I want to make sure that they get that money. And, um, yeah, so it's just been a pleasure having you on the show, Mira. I'm getting interrupted. That's okay. Uh, you and Shane, it's been a pleasure. I, I mean, I'd love to meet you guys and see it. I don't know about coming to Cafe. So. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome to come to Cafe anytime. And I'm actually going to be in New York uh, next week, so maybe we can link up then. All right, cool, cool. That'll be fun. <laughs> so there you have it, guys. Um, yeah, so just support Mira, support the team, support the product, support Shane. And until next week, guys, it's been a pleasure bringing the show to you guys. I, I, I love what I do. I love what I'm doing. I want to keep doing more of this because... I really like hearing these type of stories. They're very inspirational. They're why I got into this in the first place. So uh, thank you, Mira. Thank you, Shane, when you're listening to this. It's been a pleasure hearing your story. And obviously, I look forward to seeing more great things out of Tomato Just somewhere down the road in the future. Don't let another minute go by without taking action to change your life. Visit Ordeshi.com right now for more incredible resources, and we'll see you next time on Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur.